Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Curzon Cinemas podcast. This week we will be discussing the psychological horror thriller It Comes at Night, as well as having an interview with the film's writer-director, Trey Edvard Schultz. Edvard? Edward? It's just Edward, mate. I don't know why I felt the need to say Edvard. It's because Schultz <laughs> is a slightly German-sounding name, so I immediately went Edvard. Uh, see us. Trey Edvard Schultz! Willkommen! Oh, isn't oh, it's because of um, Django Unchained, isn't he? Schultz. Yeah. That. Yeah. Anyway, Trey Edward Schultz, uh, so yeah, we'll have an interview of him later on. But first, let's introduce who's joining us this week. I'm Sam Howlett, and joining me, a woman who only comes out at night, it's Jenna Hobbs. Hello. Hi. <laughs> that makes you sound like a lady of the night. <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, also joining us this week, a man so scared of the dark, he only comes out in the day. It's True. Jake Cunningham. <laughs> Oh, that's so true, yeah. Jake, why are you so scared of the dark? Yeah. What happened? Uh, it's just I got locked in the podcast booth for for a night. Uh, what? Wait, was isn't there a, there's a horror film that you like where it's set at a radio station? Yeah, it's called Pontypool. Yeah. And that, it's like a zombie outbreak, but entirely set in a radio station. Yeah, that's yeah. based on my life. <laughs> that's why he's scared of the dark. Yeah. Excellent. So, yeah, we will be discussing the film in all its detail. It's quite a spoiler-heavy film, so we will throw out a spoiler warning at some point for those of you who have not seen it, as there is much to discuss in the film's final act, uh, and as well as the interview with the director himself. But before that, the opening pitch for this week. So the film is about a family who live in the forest after some sort of vaguely apocalyptic infection has ravaged the earth and this family are alone in the woods and confronted with another family and they wonder if they should trust them and help them etc so the pitch this week guys who which non-horror character would you like least like to show up at your door in an apocalyptic event so a non-horror character that you think oh god it's this person this is going to be horrible jc okay um jacob Jakob Cunningham. Jakob Cunningham. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I was thinking of uh, people that that you don't think of as horror characters that mm. actually, when you think about it, are pretty horrible. Okay. Particularly, say, let's say you're at night mm-hmm. and you're in bed, and let's say your bed kind of faces the door, and you've like you just see the door yep. handle open, and you kind of pull the sheets up. And I'm thinking about a character entrance as well. Right. And a character entrance that's well known and establishes uh, the identity of a character going forward. Willy Wonka. 
<laughs> yeah, Gene Wilder or Johnny Depp? Gene Wilder. Okay. Always. Yeah, and would so, he like open the door and then do like a the tumble? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what he do. So, like, because that's that's really creepy. And yeah. as as we all know, Gene Wilder did that, so that we wouldn't know uh, whether to trust him at all times nah. because he starts by walking like an old man and then does the tumble and then he's yeah. sprung up again. So you're in bed, you're trying to go to sleep. Door opens. There, Willy Wonka. He yeah. hobbles in and then does a somersault and then springs up in your face. Yes. And then he flicks something. I don't know what. Like uh, He's got magical powers, you know. Uh, and he changes the lights nope. in your room. And then your bed has turned into the boat in the Chocolate River. And Going you're in the tunnel. the tunnel. Yes. And he's doing that monologue that's just terrifying mm. uh, and I think Willy Wonka is like the, he creates chocolate dreams but you know nightmares as well well he's a uh, he spends most of the film torturing children yeah nearly drowning them turning them blue if terrifying I'm, if I'm not mistaken Willy Wonka is the basis for the jigsaw killer I think so yeah <laughs> he also his silhouette is reminiscent of the Babadook yes so imagine the door opening and it's Willy the Babadook Wonka. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, very good. That's horrible. Jenna Hobbs. <laughs> well, I think Jake's twisted. I think this this is a horror character now. Well, Willy Wonka. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Have you not seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Jake? <laughs> no, I've seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, I think I'm going to shock you here. Because Can I'm... I shock you? <laughs> <laughs> I like red wine. <laughs> Sorry, Jen. Go on. <laughs> Right. Just getting back to my serious pitch. Mm. Um, stop laughing at me. Right. I think that. Um, Jake, are you quite finished? Yeah, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going with the most annoying character in film of all time for me. And I think this is going to shock you because I think to have spoken to me and to have seen me, you would think I'm going to like this film. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm hmm. Is it something with Cher? No, I love Cher. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that was, I thought that would be the shock. Uh, no, it's going to be um, Elle Woods in Legally Blonde. Reese okay. Witherspoon's yeah. character. Ooh. Okay. It's a post-apocalyptic world and you, you've just got one person with you for the rest of time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Could you imagine how annoying she would be? She'd be bending and snapping and you'd just be like, pick up the wood, Elle, we need to make a fire. <laughs> She'd just be like, always right, but wrong. Like, clearly wrong, but then always proving you right. She'd be like, I'm going to go downstairs and, um, you know, use up all our water. And you'd be like, why would you do that, Elle? And then all of a sudden you'll realise the water was the thing that was killing you. And, you know, she was right all along. Also, what use is a lawyer when there is no more law? Yeah. Mm. Mm. But in, in my head, it's like we've replaced the kid from the road with her. So, uh, so like the the, the the straight man in this is yeah. Viggo Mortensen. Walking around a trolley full of uh, stuff with, with Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, is she always wearing her like blonde suit as well? Oh uh, yeah, she's bright pink all the time, right. and she always gets annoyed about chipping her nails, things yeah. like that. And this isn't against Reese Witherspoon. I love Reese. Mm -hmm. It's just Elle Woods, the most annoying character ever. Ever. Does she have a dog as well? Oh, Bruiser. <laughs> Is Bru Bruiser still going? Oh, Bruiser's still there. Oh, Useless. No. What was the sequel to Legally Blonde? It was called? when the dogs fell in love, like Legally Blonde 2 something. 
blonde. Blonde. <laughs> Back in the habit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's it. Another I don't have one. much about the story other than I just, just wanted to like, share. Apocalypse, you just hate that. Yeah. It's just like annoying. So yeah. It's not really making it a horror character. It's more just making it an annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone for an annoyance as well. Yeah. Uh, I've gone for Ruby Rod from The Fifth Element, who is uh, Chris Tucker's character. Oh, yeah. A phenomenally annoying character. Who not So not only is he incredibly annoying, uh, he's also scared of everything, which is someone you really don't want to be with in a horror situation. Mm. And he's got that re- high-pitched squeal. Oh, he almost ruins that film, I think. I mean... I love I- the film, but... God, he's a terrible character. <laughs> and him showing up at your door, I think I'd rather just spend eternity alone than have Ruby Rod with me. <laughs> That's quite a statement. I didn't yeah. even get that far yeah. with Elwood. So are you saying you'd murder him? Uh, well... Well, there's no law. <laughs> As Henry II said, who will rid me of this troublesome <laughs> Ruby Rod? And then in- insinuate what you think that will mean yourself. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can see that. He is really annoying. Yeah. I, I-, I think the fifth element is fine I don't love it that much mm. I would say Lilu would be horrible as well she's, she's really pretty annoying, annoying. yeah like, mo- Yeah, most people in that film would be really yeah. annoying to hang ridiculously out with ridiculously over the top yeah. yeah I think maybe we've gone for an e- I've gone for an easy option picking an annoying character mm. rather than someone who's just like unsettling rather than my vision of true terror <laughs> <laughs> yeah well when I when we talked about this earlier as an example I used Mrs. Brown like, imagine <laughs> Mrs. Brown shutting up hello there but God. Yeah, that's all Mrs. Brown does. It's just she does. Go, says hello there. It's really annoying. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Imagine that. That would be horrible. Just zombie. Ah, hello there. <laughs> uh, 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 imagine the the like basement scene in the road, but with Mrs. Brown instead of Vigo. <laughs> there are lots of characters that would be just useless in this situation. Like Woody, any, any Woody Allen character would just be... Frustrating beyond yeah, belief. Yeah, I don't I think. think he becomes a horror character no. at all. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like, what would be a really bland one? Like, Joaquin Phoenix's one in Irrational Man, like a philosophy teacher. That would, that would, that would annoy me as well. Yeah. Pick, pick up the firewood. But what does it mean to have firewood? <laughs> I haven't seen Irrational Man. Um, okay, so should we take a vote? Yeah, sure. Well. I'm going to go for Willy Wonka. I know, but Jake only won a couple of weeks ago, and I feel like it's not fair. He's, he might win overall. Mm. He's stacking up the points. You can't vote tactically, Jen. You've just got to go for what you believe. Or is it not an election? No, this is like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, who are we trying to get in here? Yeah, there's no grid that tells you if you want this person, vote for this person. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jake won. Well yeah. done, Jake. You met up with Trey Edvard Schultz, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did meet up with the hair. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> uh, Trey Edward Schultz. And uh, do you want to introduce this interview for us? Uh, yeah, Trey. But weirdly, I'd not met this guy before or listened to interviews. Mm. I'd read stuff. But for like weeks beforehand, this was like the most casual that I'd been approaching an interview. Because I just, for some reason in my head, it was just like, he's definitely just going to be a dude. Mm. I was just like, he's definitely cool. And this was even before I'd seen the film as well. It's like, yeah, yeah, I just got the feeling. Is it because it's, his name's Trey? Yeah, there's something about mm. Trey. Um, I was like, yeah, that's that's a cool name. This is going to be a cool guy. And then 
when I was like prepping the questions, and then when I got in the um, the like room before the interview mm. room, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm suddenly really nervous because <laughs> I've just prepped the whole time thinking he's going to be really cool. Like, what if he's awful and this is a terrible interview?" And uh, but then it was great, and he was exactly as I hoped, and it's a really nice discussion. And I know he had kind of issues with how the film's been marketed mm. in different territories, and he actually got into talking about that, which is something that I didn't expect. And um, so there's some stuff, uh, really interesting stuff. And there's, he goes into a lot of the, the darker territory. Uh, we touch on some stuff that kind of is in the trailers, but maybe not necessarily in the films mm-hmm. and uh, what you might be expecting from this film um, for those people that are listening that haven't maybe seen how it's been marketed. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Excellent. So this is Trey Edward Schultz. Enjoy. Uh, so we're delighted to welcome Trey Edward Schultz onto the Curzon Film Podcast. Delighted to be here, man. Excellent. Um, so what I wanted to start with uh, today to talk about It Comes at Night is the name, because it's just a wonderful name. Yes, thank you. It's lovely. <laughs> oh, it invokes so much in just four little words. I hope so. I love it. Yeah. Well, um, who came up? Was that, was that your name? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, I came up with it, and um, I didn't think... Uh, well, it... it I'm glad you love it. I think a lot of people, at least in the States, have been uh, frustrated and hate the title and don't feel it's true to the movie. Um, I guess that's why they hate it, because a lot of people thought it was going to be a monster movie or something. Uh, And I never thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense that they would expect that. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. It almost feels like the tagline that would come on a 50s horror. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's Uh, great. It comes at night. That's great. Hell yeah. (laughs) Um, so uh, talking about the fact that people have been taking issue with not knowing what it is yes um, did you ever think about showing this the outbreak that we we have before Paul and his family are hiding no Um, never had the slightest desire to okay and it was always uh um, but part of it is just the storytelling I like. I like just being dropped into a story and, and going going forward with the characters and figuring out stuff as it goes on. Um, and then past that, it's like how many damn movies have we seen that start with the outbreak and how it starts and, and sets up everything. So why do we need it again? But I don't know. Yeah, because... Um, did you think, uh, going into this, oh, I want to do a Cabin in the Woods or I want to do a a take on a slasher or something no a take on a zombie and it wasn't it 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 was the opposite it was it was just starting with the personal and it's what it this turned into and i didn't even fully comprehend why it became what it was if that makes sense yeah. so it was like I, you know i lost someone i loved i was in grief and i started writing and it started with the opening scene which is taken almost word for word I probably from what happened in my life and then spewed off into a totally fictional narrative um, and uh, now in hindsight I can psychoanalyze every, and see just how personal and intermeshed everything is from uh, t- the setting and visuals to relationships between characters and everything else um, but after you do that and you you know you have to like try to get a movie and made and stuff. You have to like pitch it or something. And, yeah. and at that point, I was like, "Yeah, it's like my version of a horror movie." And like, you know, uh, but I, I never approached it like that. Okay, it wasn't so much intellectual and like I'm gonna do my take on this thing. It was more just purely personal and see see what it turned into. Yeah, and that that opening scene is 
it's really impressive for kind of grounding the film as to what we're going to stay in just with these small group of people yeah. in this small location it yeah. never feels like we need to learn exactly what happened at all that's just a really lovely scene that feels thank you. absolutely heartbreaking but horrible thank you same. thank you that was the goal yeah um but and so we're, we're given this setup of this this house in the woods and this family living there and then we get the arrival of will uh christopher abbott and that brings in the idea that i think is runs throughout the film and the thing that i took away from it is this discussion of kind of trust and faith sure um, and that becomes an, like a big issue in the film. And how do you see their relationships of trusting each other, the two families, develop throughout the course? And where did that come from for you? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Okay, where that came from, um, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> that was more like... I don't know. I, I, I was like reading books on genocide at the time when I wrote this, and I was just thinking about... Uh, how like a group of people just normal people can do something terrible to another group of people like I was really just like surely that was fascinating to me um, and then I don't it, it just kind of spun into everything that it is and for me I approach it as like I believe in every character in the movie and I think they're all just people yeah. uh, trying to do their best and there's no bad guys or good guys and like I was fascinated by um, just putting all these people I kind of cared about in one house and seeing how that turned out, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, because we are, we are with Paul and Travis and their family, but this could very easily be exactly the same film if we were in Will's perspective as totally, well. Totally, totally. And that that's what I think is, that's the great subversion for me, is that I'm watching it and I do actually I know we're given hints to mistrust people yeah. but ultimately yeah. you I did come out of it thinking I believe everything that everyone said That's which awesome. is not something for a horror film it's very true yeah. <laughs> well but, and it was never approached as a yeah. straight horror movie you know yeah because um, yeah they're all I think there's something about how the fact that when they're they're brought down to their kind of primitive vulnerability yeah and ultimately they still mistrust other people yeah which I, I, I don't know part of it was I don't know whether there was a political thing in there about that ultimately they're still people are still scared of sharing yeah and that I think that comes in later on in the more in the final act of the film of course of course I mean I, I think that's 100% there and uh, uh, I don't know it, it scares me people scare me yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> um, yeah because you really feel for everyone in it I hope so. Um, now, looking at the visuals of the film, it's it's a very beautiful film. Um, Thank you. I wonder if you could tell us about uh, the development that you took with uh, Drew Daniels and Karen Murphy, the production designer. Yes. Uh, building this house and the look of the film. Um, love love them. They're my they're my collaborators and uh, they're amazing. Um, uh, it, it was a lot of stuff. It was so like uh, first, just I guess visually. The first thing Drew and I talked about were like, uh, it was how we wanted to feel night. And like a lot of, um, even a, a lot of horror movies and just movies in general have night lighting, you know? Like it feel it's like subtle movie lighting, but it, it's different from how night really feels. Um, and I think the movie's sort of also about fear and sort of fear of the unknown and 
you know just the simple unknown of that black void around mm. you when it's like just one little light and what's like that scares me oh yeah you know so we we really wanted to nail that that was the first thing we always talked about but then that leaked over to everything. I, there's so much, all the way to the film grammar and sort of like almost like the patience and subtlety we wanted with the camera a lot of the times to like how we did our day interiors and it had to have its own look because even there's boards on the windows. Um, but then to like the production design aspect and everything, I had written, um, I had written bits and pieces of details of how I saw the house and the script a bit. Um, and then, uh, Karen was fascinated by that and why and what it was was it was it was inspired by uh, sort of my like part-time childhood home which was my grandparents house which was a ranch in the middle of Texas called Pee Wee Acres um, and uh, my grandfather was a prisoner of war from World War Two and uh, he escaped and survived and went on to live a life and my grandma always talked about how different he was like the man before that war and the man after um, and uh, just how internal he was and not a very emotional person but on the walls in his house it felt like it was um, it was his insides put up on the walls you know there were weapons from uh, different centuries and decades like swords and rifles and uh, World War II paraphernalia yeah like a Nazi Luger and family intermixed with family photos and Bruegel paintings and it's like it captivated me as a kid and there was always sort of a timeless quality to that house and then it, to me it just felt like the perfect way to tell this story and sort of what the story is about and what I was referencing to when I was doing it was sort of you know it's it's like cycles of violence um, and how we keep going in these loops um, so to me I, I wanted it to be sort of like a, a timeless house in that way um, with different decades and in periods sort of felt in it mm. um and karen my production designer just like you know helped us find this incredible house and just filled it with this world and uh she's incredible she did us a huge solid by i think this is the smallest movie she's done uh she, she was like supportive and passionate and amazing um and a lot of it though we didn't do a huge amount like the house is as is we built the red door and the surrounding structure to it um and then she just brought the world more of the world to that house but that house is really incredible mm. and you mentioned um the painting uh, which the triumph of death yeah which what what i quite liked about the way that you present the painting is um often when there's when there's a piece of art in a film and it's like meant to be i don't know referential or implicit uh it will be kind of in the back of the shot and you feel like yeah. oh i recognize that yeah. whereas this this is front and center <laughs> yeah. and that, i really admired that i thought that was great because that, that's just telling people go and look this up as yeah. well like yes take note of what this is yeah uh you know um i don't know i think the one shot in the movie that's like the painting and then pans to the hallway and the family photos and the door at the end uh, almost like visually s sums up what the movie's about in a way too um, and uh, yeah I don't know it was important to me I'm glad you dug it yeah um, and uh, we briefly touched on the camera uh, it's got this really interesting relationship with the characters thank you um, it's like, like we a lot of time in horror even like thinking of The Shining the camera often has this kind of floating omnipotence about it yeah but with this film it like there's a particular tie to the character of Travis. Yes. Which 
I really, really love. There's a particular moment where he looks to the side and the camera goes with him. And at that point, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whose head I was in. <laughs> That's so great, man. I love that. Uh, I, I know we approached it that I think this story is Travis's story. And uh, the camera uh, should feel like him. And But almost not even always be literally subjective to his point of view, but sort of like convey his feeling if that makes sense and even if he's not around for certain scenes like almost shoot it in the way he would feel it or or uh or perceive it you know and, and scan it um but yeah thank you yeah so um i think travis is a really wonderful creation um he's uh, he's at this age he's 17 is that right yeah he's at this age where he's he's first kind of beginning to question his father's actions yeah. and he's kind of exploring his sexuality as well. Yeah. Um, so in some way, do you think kind of see this as a coming of age film? Yeah, in a very twisted way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a very twisted way, uh, yes. And to me, you know, he was always the gateway to the story and it had to be through his eyes. And I just, uh, I don't know, I feel for this poor kid. He's, good. <laughs> He's like, he should be chasing girls in high school. He shouldn't be dealing with some of the heaviest stuff that he could be dealing with mm-hmm. um, and now uh, there's been we mentioned the release of the film in America and the reaction there yeah. uh, there's so there's been a lot made about how the film has been marketed yeah. and it's been perhaps looking at the trailer more of a choppy slasher home invasion yeah what's your take on that do you think people that means more people will see it or i it's it's hard um i will say i think i'm more at peace with it now because i'll drive myself crazy if i'm not but um you know it, it was just really frustrating to me it's frustrating to put um so much of yourself into something and then have it go into the the world in sort of the wrong way and it's frustrating to see certainly the wrong audience getting suckered in and just hating the movie and then it's like that sucks and even past that i hope that people that would have seen the movie don't see it because of what the trailer is uh but what i what keeps my spirits up are when you know either people just love it or they see it and they're like it's not what i thought it'd be or expected and it's mismarketed or something but i i dug it yeah you know and it makes them think and um I don't know. It's it's weird to be in the middle of it. Um, and I, I, for me, I just hope it reaches the people it's meant to reach. And I I wasn't in control of the marketing. Yeah. It was never designed to be a mass consumption movie. And, you know, so it's crazy. Like in the States, we have a huge wide release, uh, uh, which is insane to me. Um, but hey, I don't know. Still figuring it out. Yeah, because um, there's, there's a, even shots in the trailer uh, that don't appear they in aren't the in the movie right yeah, um, yeah. and we, there was a lot of fuss made up about that happening in Rogue One um, but that made me curious to think how much of this film was shaped in the edit of it not not as much as you would think the the biggest thing um, there was a balancing of just sort of tonal between nightmares and reality and getting that to a place I really dug and then the biggest biggest thing was like I did have an end end like a final big nightmare confrontation uh, where, um, you know, I think these nightmares that happen throughout the movie, for me, they're, they're a way of like sort of accessing this kid's subconscious, you know, and visually representing what's going on in his head, whether that's uh, 
the fear of this disease or grief over his grandpa or this beautiful new woman in the house and how twisted that can be in these circumstances or this weird guy type, like whatever. I don't want to spoil everything, but they're, they're him sort of confronting his subconscious and his surroundings and these nightmares. And um, I had written a final confrontational nightmare where he has to contend with everything his parents have done, okay. where he essentially goes to hell in his world, if that makes sense. The fire? That's the fire. That's why yeah, you see yeah. the fire. We literally burnt down a set. <laughs> um, and uh, some amazing performances that I cut, but it was just too much. And it was like... Yeah, I, it was like the last five minutes were just insane, just like, bah, bah, bah. <laughs> and intellectually, I could justify it a million ways and had like a lot I was trying to say into it, but no one, I would show it to people and no one would get any of that. They'd just be like, holy shit, chill out. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> so that was tough. And I edited alone forever and I, I didn't know what to do at the end. And I brought on another editor and then we just went further down the rabbit hole and we didn't know what to do. And then one day we were picture locked and everything. One day I like had an epiphany and then I started like just playing with a waste I was like hmm is there a way to say everything I want to say and get across what I want to get across without the fireworks mm-hmm. um, and I, I I I started playing around and I was like this feels great <laughs> might have to unpicture lock yeah. and I convinced everyone and everyone was very supportive but you know it's nutty I just finished the movie like a month ago and now it's already coming out uh, but I'm happy with with where things wound up and how it turned out. I'm proud of it. Yeah, I mean, you gave us what will probably be one of the most bleak final shots of the year. So hey, for that, I love I'm grateful. that. I love that. Yeah. Well, man, thanks you so much. <laughs> Thank for you, brother. It's been great. Cheers. It was great, man. Thanks. Cheers. Okay, so the first I ever heard of this film was when I saw the poster months ago. I think A24 announced it on Twitter that their next film would be this horror film. It comes at night, and the poster's incredible. The dog. It's the dog barking at something in the distance in the forest, and just the title, it's kind of like the four words are getting bigger as they come down the, mm. the page, and it really reveals nothing at all. Um, so going in, I had like sort of minimal expectation. I really didn't know what to think. And, and you had read stuff about avoiding yeah, trailers. Yeah, I'd, I'd read to avoid trailers and... Um, reading into it at all uh, so enjoy this podcast uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah I think it's a 90 minute just um, unrelenting grueling punishing sort of anxiety fest yeah which is exactly what you want from a horror film yeah I, I'm not a well established horror mm. guy um, and so I read stuff online afterwards like with people complaining it's like it's not even scary like the same yeah. thing like people had with The Witch and It yeah. Follows and Babadook and um, and I would like I think this is scarier than those films yeah but this was nerve shredding yeah I, I had a horrible experience watching that and this in the best way possible like like covering my eyes moments because yeah. it's like really intense but in such a different way because there's actually quite a lot of space to it mm. um, like when it goes out into the woods it's so um it's like intense the way that everything it's like you're used to a feeling of claustrophobia in these things but the house itself has a real like it's touched on in the, in the interview how they had to yeah. work around the fact that everything was boarded up but there's a lot of space in the house but not much natural light and it's a really strange atmosphere that's created and that makes that unease yeah which you feel from the first moment for 90 minutes yeah 
I don't think I've ever been so anxious in the cinema. I just, honestly, the entire 90 minutes just felt like like something awful is going to happen at all yeah. times. You never felt like, oh, this is a safe bit. Oh, I think right there's now. like a two-minute bit where it's like a family bonding bit. Yeah. And that's your one moment of relief, which is about 50 minutes in, maybe. Yeah, when um, uh, Travis is talking to... Riley Keel's character yeah and they joke about him not liking cookies that's the one sort of relief I think the rest of it's just like it's a cliche but I, you are sitting at the edge of your seat your palms yeah. are very sweaty you'll pay for the whole seat but you'll only need the edge <laughs> oh god uh, so let's break down some of the cast so uh, the probably the biggest name in it is Joel Edgerton who for me has become a really impressive but underrated actor. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He's very, he's kind of quiet. He's not uh, completely emotive all the time. He's quite restrained in everything he does. And I think he could have been sort of pinholed as one of these kind of like sort of Sam Worthington, Jai Courtney, Jason Clark, Patrick Wilson types who are very much tall brunette guys that aren't particularly, you know, um, there's nothing particularly special about them. Mm. They just kind of, they do the job in certain films every now and then. Yeah, it was, what was it like? Was it a boxing film or a wrestling? Uh, Warrior, Warrior kind of broke him out yeah. and he was in Animal Kingdom as well. He's Australian. Um, so yeah, I think he could have just kind of blended into that kind of crowd. But I really think he's come into his own uh, in things like The Gift and even in things that I'm not a huge fan of like Midnight Special and Black Mass. I think he's incredible in both those films. Yeah, and, so, and he's making really interesting choices like Loving yeah. as well. Uh, he's Definitely. really choosing his role. Yeah. I don't think he, he doesn't I th- he could be a huge mega star if he mm. wanted to be, but he's picking roles that clearly mean something to him. Yeah, and he's an executive producer on this, so I think he's sort of make yeah choosing his own opportunities and creating things for himself, yeah. which is really good to see. And he's got like went into directing the gift. Yeah, and it's like, we haven't really heard much about what's going to be. It's not like he directed the gift and then has gone straight into becoming a director. Yeah, it's interesting that he's Just like gone that. on to take yeah. a. Like he's producer role here, but also an actor, and he's kind of dipping his yeah. toe into lots of different things, but seems to be doing well in all of them. Yeah, and in this, I think he's at both times you kind of feel safe with him when he's on screen. You feel safe for everyone around him because he is this kind of, you know, tough um, family man. Meets say, Ray Mears. Yeah, the sort of survival <laughs> expert of sorts. But then he, there's this kind of darkness to him, and I've heard people compare him to. 1980s Kurt Russell in this film his sort of hairy manly 
but I think there's something slightly more unhinged about him at times in this film. Yeah, to I, Kurt I don't think he's at all like comforting. No, I I, I didn't trust him really. Really, like, I I thought there were some moments where I thought, mm. okay, he's an okay dude, but there were bits like the the way that he had a plan for everything mm. and that everything had already uh, the routine of this survival was so ingrained in him, like it immediately seemed a bit untrustworthy a bit like non-human he sort of lost his humanity yeah so dedicated to surviving exactly yeah. it annoyed me how patriarchal it was and yes. how mm. he had to be the leader and he made every decision. single decision yeah. even though actually most of the times they didn't wouldn't necessarily seem like the wrong decision but also not really the right decision either yeah. but i think this is what the film's playing on there's a lot of gray areas to do with trust and truth and yeah um like the orders and trying to like what happens when you deviate in a survival situation mm. and we'll get into all those yeah. trust issues later on um, so I guess <laughs> sorry that sounds like Frasier we'll get, get into, into those them. trust is- issues later on <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, another notable actor in the film is Christopher Abbott who you may know from Girls he plays Charlie in Girls he does indeed Char- Sam yeah um, and he's another character who you kind of you're not sure if we can trust him if everything he says is believable throughout the film. Uh, what did you make of him in this? Because obviously, Jen, you're a big girls fan. I am a big girls fan. Was it distracting fan. to have Charlie suddenly rock up? I didn't recognise him in the initial ah. scene, and it wasn't until um, they took the bag off his head. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had a bandana to start with. <laughs> can I shock you? <laughs> You guys are ganging up on me today. <laughs> Sorry, it's because we're recording at night rather than... We're normally used to a morning yeah. slot. We haven't quite woken up. I know. Because Jen only comes out at night, so we can only record after six today. Are you okay, Jen? Oh, yeah, because it's, it's so dark outside at six at, at the summer solstice weekend. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway... Um, I've, lost, I've lost my train of Christopher, thought. Christopher Abbott. Christopher Abbott. I didn't necessarily recognise him to begin with, potentially because he had a bag over his head. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> I recognise those shoulders. Now, from girls, you could recognise all sorts of people's bodies from, from that. So oh, I could have recognised his shoulders. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, I thought he was great, actually. I wasn't expecting to see him in a film like this. Mm. Um it's obviously very different from Girls, but he's a great actor, and I thought he did a really good job. Yeah, well, he kind of went away from Girls, didn't he? Because I think in seasons one and two, he's this quite light character. Mm. He's almost seen as sort of overly sensitive. Mm. And then he goes away, and when he comes back in Girls in season five, he's yes. a much darker, He's got a lot more, more dramatic. Yeah. yeah, and he's bringing that to this role, mm. I think, really Definitely. well. I yeah I never really got along with him in girls. I always found him annoying, even from the in the early seasons or the mm. the darkened version. <laughs> and I was like, either way, you're still irritating. Yeah, um, but this he managed to shed that and that. I think that intensity that he was trying to bring in the later bits of girls actually works. Here. Yes, yeah, yeah, because uh, he's he's meant to be like they're both meant to be straight edged family men. Yeah, um, and that is believable, and that kind of that intensity that comes with being a driven father in that situation and the way that that boils over is very believable with both him and Joel Edgerton. Definitely, yeah. So those are the big names in the film, I guess, but for me, the heart and soul of this film was uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. as Travis, who yes. is Joel Edgerton's son. And I think he it's his film, in a way, which surprised me. 
I mean, it's not a, he's not a clear main character, but I think he's the one who you kind of identify with most. Yeah, he's kind it felt of told through his eyes for yeah. most of it. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of dream sequences, and he seems to be the only character who has those dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I think we follow because well, at the start of the film, we're not in his perspective. No, we're we're objective. We're looking. Uh, I think we can say how the film begins. Yeah, uh, with the family killing their or Travis's grandfather. Sarah, um, Joel Edgerton's wife, her father. Like, literally, he's in, you see he's infected, it's close up on his mm. face. It's really hard to watch this conversation between them all. And it's just, I think there's some awareness that he knows what's kind of going on. Yeah. And they're basically just taking him out to the woods, shooting him through the head and setting him on fire. And then we kind of, like, we, so we, we all see that objectively and maybe about 10 minutes of kind of just establishing what this world is maybe um and then we get into a dream sequence from Travis and that's where the shift becomes and then that it pivots to and from this kind of look at the family life mm. and the drama there for maybe 15 20 minutes and then you'll get 5 10 minutes of yeah. dream from Travis and i think there's maybe what three or four yeah, yeah, a handful of dreams. Yeah, mm. so we're very much we we we're, we're asked to identify with Travis, mm. and I think that really helps. It's nice to have this character as the kind of vessel for us, mm. because he's he's kind of naive, he's innocent, he's he seem he's seemingly very kind, quite sensitive, um, but then an incident happens that I think does throw you off, and this film does that a lot. You think you trust this character, and then something will happen. Like it, it will even be just one throwaway line. Or one certain look that will make you think, ooh, I don't know about this anymore. I don't know if this is the character that I'm supposed to identify with and I'm supposed mm. to trust. Um, but it, it's an amazing breakout role for him to carry this film. Yeah. And I know it's a short film, but it's such a sort of intense film. Yeah. Um, we shouldn't forget the, the women in it. Yeah, as of well. course, of like, course. Um, Riley Keough, uh, yeah. who people recognise from American Honey from last yeah. year. And oh, that's what she was in. Mm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and so she Very plays... Very different role, though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris Rabbit's wife and the father of... Uh, what's the son? Andrew. Andrew, yeah. their son. Um, and so these two families come together. Yeah. And she... And again, but like I think... Th- uh, Riley Keough is, I think, less... Has been less broken by this world. She seems to have some kind of... Um, optimism yeah. still left in her. I think that's because until... she's got her son to yeah. cling to and he's so young and she is almost able to protect him from how awful everything is by being okay. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, we should really introduce the other family. Yeah, and, that's, and then there's uh, Carmen Ejogo as Sarah, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who you will recognise from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. She's the head of the New York Ministry of Magic. I can't uh. remember what that was called. Oh, what is that called? Oh, I should know. Oh, you're the big Harry Potter person, aren't you? She was also in Alien Covenant as well. I think she she was uh, Billy Crudup's wife. Oh, man. I think. Yeah. But yeah, she was in it. So she's had a good year. Um, She's very good as well, but she's um, comparing her to Riley Keough's character. She's far more broken. Yeah. And far more sort of everything is by the book you have these rules and you stick to these rules in this new world there's no time for her for sort of um sort of uh sensitivity or um what's the word i'm looking for sentimentality yeah i mean she's Mm -hmm. very much her husband's wife yeah she's become this sort of survivalist character Yeah. yeah um and that's it for the cast really 
it's it's pretty much down to these two families clashing um and it essentially takes place almost entirely in this one house um which i think is really well handled you never feel like, i mean the claustrophobia is there but you don't feel the need to kind of you don't feel like you're bored of this one location because it's such a it's quite a big labyrinthine house it's hard to work out the layer of it in yeah. the same way that in the shining it's impossible to work out the structure of the hotel because the camera is doing is it's so close up on certain things and so wide in so other places and that really creates this feeling of unease mm. really well um so i think there's something to be said about the horror in the film and the film as a horror film. So you said you found it really scary, but there aren't there aren't monsters, there aren't villains, there isn't anything particularly like supernatural. So what is it that you found so scary? Um, I think that it's the dread, mm-hmm. um, the fact that I think early on we see Chris Rabbit is captured by Joel Edgerton and. It's revealed that he comes from a house mm-hmm. a few miles away, and they're going to go there and trade water for animals. And uh, and along the way, they bump into two other men who shoot at them. And Joel Legiston is so quick to shoot these men mm. that you don't know if they're infected or anything. Mm. And uh, uh, Abbott is beating the other guy, yeah. and then Edgerton eventually shoots him as well. And I think in that moment you understand his fear, uh, like just how yeah. terrible the world must be mm. outside of it. That you don't even take a second chance to think whether or not there there is another human being. That the risk is so high that you would just instantly shoot someone yeah. point blank on the chance that they are not a regular person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, you're just constantly have that fear that these people do of what it is that's out there I think for me kind of bouncing off what Jake said the scariest part of it was not being able to trust or be totally honest with anyone ever Yeah. and mm. once you lose that between people anything can happen as this film proves yeah. as it comes to its conclusion and yeah just the thought that you can't trust the person that you would sit down and share a drink mm. with and one like for half an hour of one evening they're your best friend ever and then the next minute yeah. you're plotting to kill them absolutely I think this is really interesting in the sense of this kind of tradition in horror films so in kind of horror films pre-1960 the horror comes from outside it coats it's aliens it's monsters it's like Dracula coming from Europe it's these external things coming in whereas after sort of, so you get Psycho, Rosemary's Baby and um, things like Night of the Living Dead where the horror comes from within the family, within the house mm. and sort of psychologically and physically it's internal and it's from within and in, he- in this film, uh, It Comes at Night the horror isn't from the infected people, it's not from any kind of zombie or anything mm. the infected actually play quite a small role in the plot of the film, essentially, I mean, the screen time of anyone with the infection—well, less than a minute. Person, yeah, you only see infected. The horror yeah. comes from the family unit and the destructivity of, like Jenna's saying, about trust within mm. the family, and that's really well handled to have to create and incite fear and horror without having a horror character per se yeah. or a horror, particular strong horror element. Yeah, I think it's it's really just boiling down to the fact that. You remove all social constructs. Yeah. Um, and immediately, 
um, people don't trust people. Mm. And there, there's a line like mentioned later on about that Joel Edgerton talks about uh, having to share things and how good of a thing that is mm. that people can share and that we can have water and they can have food and we can work together on that. And that lasts for about five minutes <laughs> um, before it's like, that's mine, that's mine, they're going to steal our stuff. Yeah. And uh, that that parasite of paranoia um, when you're kind of left by yourself to fend and you've got no, you've got no government, you've got no work or anything. Yeah. And when people are just reduced to their basic instinct. Yeah, there's no law, so there's no L words to help you here. Yeah. She's not there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... I think a lot of people are going to compare this to things like The Road, which you mentioned earlier, and to, uh, for me, I thought of um, a film we actually discussed on the podcast ages ago, The Survivalist. Mm -hmm. It's quite similar to that in a way, and even to last year's 10 Cloverfield Lane, as they were being locked in somewhere um, during some kind of event. And that flip-flopping of trust. Yeah. But I think this handles it in such a way that really does sort of ring true this feeling of mistrust and this horror of paranoia and anxiety in a really delicate way and it's only 90 minutes mm. and we, we talk about length um, film length quite a lot on the podcast uh, but I think this is no scene is wasted no shot is wasted here no and there's something that I really wanted to uh, it, it's shot beautifully it, mm -hmm. it looks absolutely amazing some of the, just like the tree shots yeah they're the best shots of trees you'll see since Twin Peaks um, <laughs> but what, Smell so, those trees. Yeah. Mm -mm. Something that annoys me in a lot of films is um, fades, mm. uh, a transition where, uh, uh, to me, a fade can be can be excellent, but used sparingly. Um, yeah. Because like, it feels like a lot of the time it feels like sloppy editing in that it's just like we can't figure out how to bunch these yeah, scenes yeah. together so Let's what we do merge is, them yeah and that's it like, and it feels like it's like it feels lazy yeah and there are two fades in this film that are so good that actually like they're really thinking about the editing and they're thinking about how one scene blends to the other and how they can actually find meaning mm. in the way that scenes move between themselves is, is it the house yeah. in the middle of the screen that becomes just the trees yeah, yeah. There's one, and there, there's a um, there's a shot from the woods that then returns like it fades through to a point of view from the house of the same tree but in yeah. a different angle and then then there's another one where it, where it fades to uh, from the woods into Travis through a window with this kind of boxed in right window uh i don't know what that when you have iron cladding that's kind of yeah. like a cage on the window um but there was, it was just those two moments and it's not like normally people say with editing it's not something you should notice mm. but it was just these two moments because it's it just felt so satisfying to see something that's often done so lazily done so well excellent so uh do go and see it comes at night uh and once you once you do come back because uh, we're now going to go full spoiler territory here uh, talk about things that happened in the last sort of 10 15 minutes of the film because there was much to discuss so uh there is no it i think there isn't it what's the it oh, i don't know it's whatever brought the dog back mm. Mm. yeah um i think it's i don't i don't know what it is i think like I don't know whether the the infection, like the the it is the nightmares, right? That Travis okay. has, um, and that's what happens at night. And I think 
the nightmares are the first symptom of the infection. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why Andrew, the little kid, is found in the other bedroom from sleepwalking as well. Because mm-hmm. Andrew, yeah, and so like they say that Andrew's never sleptwalked before. Yeah. And then he starts sleepwalking, and we know that Travis is sleepwalking as well. Mm. So I think that's what it is. Okay. The infection's really interesting because we have no idea what it is, what it does to you, how you get it, or anything. It's not introduced to us at all. Mm. It's just there. So it seems like there's a lot of a lot of vomiting blood, mm. which is really nice to watch. Blisters. Blisters. Mm. Black eyes. Um, yeah. yeah, and they're not they're not zombies or anything. It's not like they turn. It's not like it turns them violent like in Twenty Eight Days Later or anything. Mm. It just. I don't, yeah, it, it's not really clear what fully happens to I an infected body. I thought it just sort of slowly killed them. Right. But, mm. And then obviously it's really highly contagious and taking the rest yeah. of them down. So the film leaves us leaves you with a lot of questions. Um, the big one, I think, is who, opened, who the opened the door and who brought the dog back. What's happened to the dog? Why did it run off in the woods? What, yeah. what did it see? Who infected the dog and then brought it back? Or the dog just well, the dog came back, came but back how did the then, dog get in? Yeah. Well, guys, it's talk, time to talk about one of my favourite topics. Aspect ratios is what we need to talk about. Here we go. <laughs> All right, he's taking he's taking his headphones off because I've already told him this. <laughs> um, so when we're in reality in the film, um, we have our screen is like sixteen by nine, uh, like normal aspect ratio that we'd okay. be used to. Um, and then when we go into Travis's dreams, um, the screen actually becomes widescreen, so it's black bars at the top and bottom. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we can differentiate between reality and dreams in the first kind of three times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in the last kind of 10, 15 minutes of the film, it's widescreen the whole time. It's letterboxed the whole time. Oh, so you think that... I think at that point, the dreams and reality for Travis are completely blurred. And he's got no idea when he's awake or not. Mm. And that's why there's so much confusion because mm. he, I think he he undid it. Like he there's that the there's that dream that we see where he goes out and he hears the dog. He goes out at yeah. night with the gun, and so I think that's when the door is opened. Okay. And he brings the dog back in. The dog is killed by something, or bitten by something. Right. Travis brings the dog in. The dog has an infection, um, as well. And then so, I think that is when. Like it gets brought into the house, mm. although like Travis, I think already has it anyway. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. I wasn't sure if the dog had an infection. I think that um, Joel Edgerton was just like overcautious and overzealous, mm. and he he would just yeah. yeah. Kill I think the like, dog the, like I don't know if it's essential that the dog does have it. Okay. I think the dog could almost be a red herring in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just that Travis is the one that's gone out and left the door open when he's come back in after bringing the dog mm-hmm. after dreaming about it but that's okay. actually reality okay and then he's gone and found Andrew sleepwalking yeah as well okay definitely an option um, so really that means that the door being open has nothing to do with anything because he it, was he was all, they were already they're the already panic. infected yeah do you think they're all infected from the beginning I think Travis they're being around the, the, uh, the granddad well if you notice there are two beds 
in Travis's room. Yeah, so he was sharing. Oh, and absolutely. the dog is mentioned to be the granddad's dog. Ah. But then um, Travis says that he found... He found Andrew, Andrew in Andrew and granddad's room. room. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like, if the dog is the granddad's, yeah. if the dog can get infected, which Joel Edgerton believes, yeah. like, and they would have evidence probably from previous experience that animals can pass the infection yeah. on. So if the dog is the da- is the granddad's and then the dog sleeps in the same room yeah. as um, Travis, is at some point the dog lick Travis's face? Maybe. Possibly. I don't know, but I think... It's a lovely dog though, isn't it? But yeah, I, I think Travis is infected from the beginning. Okay. And that's what the dreams are. That is... There is no proof for that. And I asked <laughs> um, Trey after the interview yeah. if he knew like, who opened the door. Yeah. And he said he did. And he wouldn't tell me. Ooh. Well, it's it's obviously Will that opens the door, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Who's well, Will? Will is oh, uh, oh, Chris Christopher Abbott. Abbott. Because Sorry. I, you trust Christopher Abbott. I don't cr- trust Christopher Abbott. Because he says that he was living with his brother. Yes. And then later on, he mentions that he's an only child. And Jonathan brings him up on this. It's kind of a little throwaway line. He says, oh, you said you were living with your brother. And he says, oh, yeah, well, my, my wife's brother. I, I considered him my brother. There's got to be a reason they have mm. that dialogue in, I think. Unless it is a red herring to make me want to... I think this is full of red herrings. This is so. full of red herrings. And the reason that I don't believe that is... I think it betrays the message of the film. Because I think this film is... Something that's underlying throughout is that you can believe everything that anyone says. Mm. Like, you, like, if you trust everything in this film ultimately people are still going to try and kill each other mm. and I think that's sca- that's the scariest thing that mm. you could tell each other the truth about everything yeah and so that's why I choose to believe okay. in Chris Rabbit because ultimately it makes the film scary yeah that's a good point but there's that line and there's also the bit when he first takes Christopher Rabbit to go back to his house and the two guys appear and try and sort of ambush them and he says you walked 50 miles and didn't see a soul we've left our house for a minute and two people have already appeared maybe he's in cahoots with some people and that's why he's so adamant that they not kill this other guy as well potentially uh, and maybe will open the door to get something going to get something started so that he could eventually take over the house and take over their water supply and this nice setup they've got which clearly works but then they're trying to leave aren't they mm. or are once, they once not they trying real- to leave? maybe they're not trying to leave maybe they're trying to meet these other people that they know they're out there because someone infected the dog if the dog is infected yeah, but the dog can be infected by another animal. That's true. Uh, but we don't ever see Andrew either to see if he is. A, he doesn't. If he looks. He's completely infected. hidden by his mum. Yeah. 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 And they keep saying, "Cover your eyes. Cover your eyes." Why else would you do that, other than being infected? Or because he didn't want them to. Didn't want Andrew to see them with a gun. Yeah. And threatening to kill people. Just to kind of keep it. Keep the keep Andrew innocent. safe and innocent. Mm. There are no answers. We're not going to get anywhere. That's why but it's good. Because yeah, it's, it's absolutely. like ultimately. Yeah the unknown is so much scarier yeah. and that's what this film so relies on I mean there's things as well there's things as well like how long has this been going on for like when did this outbreak start yeah um, actually this made me think that it's kind of timeless you, yeah, you could have an it comes at night cinematic universe yeah because like in the way that World War Z didn't but World War Z the book is a collection yeah. of little stories in different places at different times yeah. during a zombie outbreak and this is just one little story about mm. this Outbreak. Like an, it's like an enhanced view on one little part of this worldwide apocalyptic yeah, event. Yeah. Like imagine maybe a office 
situation yeah. as well. And like this, this infection takes over some office. Yeah, uh, that, that's kind of like Belco experiment yeah. stuff. Um, but you could have so many different places and really weave the horror of it. Yeah. Any other thoughts about uh, some unexplored parts of the film that you had some theories about, or anything left still by the open? I mean, do you, do you think that is Travis definitely infected at the end, or is it another dream? He's definitely infected. He's definitely infected. Yeah, because he infects the other two. And they just sort of look at each other over the table, and he's oh, gone. That last he? shot is horrible. Yeah. yeah, like they know that that's it for them. Yeah, um, that is something that I I can't remember if it's in the interview or not. I think it might have been afterwards. Okay. Um, but the final shot of the film was not normally the final cut of the film. Ooh. There was a whole other scene, um, and this like he actually had a final cut, and they had picture locked it, as mm-hmm. he puts it, that, that it was done, and then he kind of just had a moment and was just like, no, we have to take it out. We have to bring it back again. And then, mm. so at the time of the interview, he had actually only finished what became this cut that we've seen a month ago. Wow. wow. And with that new final shot, which is maybe the like one of the best bits of the whole thing. Because it's... Yeah, it barely stays in it as well, doesn't it? It's yeah. just... Also, yeah. it's ambiguous, is it? Are they sitting there knowing that they've caught this and their son's yeah. gone and they don't have anything left to live for? Or are they sitting there thinking... Can we kill our son to yeah. keep us safe? You don't know what order it's, oh, the events no, have happened. I, I think they've like they're sitting there knowing that they've just shot their son through the head. Do you think? I think it's either or. Isn't it's either it? or. Oh, I think that, that, a lot of that film. I think they were so worried about keeping Travis safe. Yeah. Like don't like when he got so mad at him for running off into the woods. Like and in those situations, what have you got to live for? Your children and keeping your children safe. So I wondered. It could be either. You could be right. Mm. They've shot him through the head because they want to save themselves. Or they've realised they've got nothing left to live for anymore. Uh, no, I think they're both infected, as well. Like, I think you look at their eyes. Mm. Like it's not quite sh- sh- yeah. quick because they were like having a fight. Like, like Chris Rabbit beats him up or something. Yeah. Um, but I, for me, like it could be a trick of the screen that I was in. But as soon as I saw it, it was just oh, they're both infected. I did think about the mum's eyes, but I wasn't sure if it was it was clear or not. I couldn't. I, wasn't, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. Guarantee that I've definitely yeah, seen yeah. it. I wasn't sure. Uh, I think uh, Travis is still alive by the end of the film because I think we're so aligned with his with him that the film won't finish until he's dead. So I think that's just before they're about to kill him, that final shot. Mm. And then when the film ends, that means that the next thing they do is kill him. Right. I, I we're kind know, of because we're, we're kind of. I feel like we're only watching the film as long as Travis is alive. That's a really interesting point. Um, it's just because the we so many times we're showing mm. the shot of the the table, the dining table, yeah. and that we're opposite Travis during that. And so for me, his vacancy is vacancy from life. Yeah, I think this film needs another watch with a pen and paper. A watch pen and paper <laughs> and another hour to yeah. go into yeah. it. Well, it's, yeah, I turned to you at the end of the film and I was like, Sam, is it finished or is there another part? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice to talk about. And like a small film like this, and yeah. like to get really into it, yeah. like like people do with something like Inception, yeah, or a Marvel film or a Star yeah. Wars film. We're talking about it as if it's got this rich, full history, yeah, which it it feels like there is, mm. yeah, uh, yeah. It feels like such a full world, yeah. Okay, so uh, that was it. Comes at night, but it's not the only film you can watch this week, Jenna. 
what do you recommend we could watch this weekend on Curls on Home Cinema? A few weeks ago, Jake, Helen and I spoke about um, Seasons in Quantity Four Portraits of John Berger um, and that is still on Curls on Home Cinema and well worth the watch and you can go back and listen to us talk about that. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, and just on a Joel Legerton horror mm. hype, uh, his directorial uh, debut that we mentioned earlier, The Gift, is on Curzon Home Cinema. And that's really nice for kind of the the house of The Gift. Yeah. Maybe think of this house as well in the, um, the kind of like the openness of it. Like this one's all boarded up, but in The Gift, it's so full of windows and it's so yeah, light. Yeah, there, there are no walls, there's just windows. It's yeah. really modern. Mm, yeah. And a lot of The Gift happens in the day as well. Yeah. Um, so it just. It plays on a lot of the tropes of horror. It's, actually, it's really good fun. It's another yeah. film about trust as well, mm. and who can you trust? Who is the trustworthy character? Yeah. Who's the villain? It plays around with those ideas. Uh, and it's a different Joel Edgerton role as well. Yeah. Yeah, you, would nev- you haven't seen that before. Uh, you've never you've seen You've never him. seen him like this before. <laughs> the Edgerton of your seat. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so that is the end of the show thank you very much for listening thanks to CSR for letting us use their studio once again and that's goodbye from Jenna bye goodbye from Jake bye bye and we will see you next week thanks for listening can I shock you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.